Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is the Bill Press Show live at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. All right, everybody. Welcome to the Bill Press Show. It is Tuesday, March 5th, 2019. Bill Press is not here today, so you are stuck with me, Peter Ogburn, sitting in for Bill Press today all day long. What a day. What a week. What a year. What a decade. I mean, just there's so much going on. As always, we always say that, but it's always true. We are streaming live, youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. By the way, make sure you subscribe there on YouTube. Uh, and if you're listening to our podcast later on in the day, hello uh, and welcome uh, from the past. <laughs> we are live in the mornings, uh, but we put our podcast out. You can listen to it at any time throughout the day. Uh, but if you are listening on our podcast, make sure you go check out the YouTube page as well because we have videos up there for you to check out. We are on Free Speech TV and we are on great progressive radio stations around the country. Thank you, thank you, thank you for tuning in. we got a great lineup of guests that are going to be happening uh, today. Uh, Andrew Restucia from the White House will be here in a couple moments. Plus, we got Van Newkirk, our buddy Van Newkirk. is going to be back in the studio. And Travis Waldron, who talks about sports, but is also kind of now on the socialism beat at HuffPost. So he has written all about uh, uh, not just socialism abroad, but how socialism is now becoming the boogeyman for Republicans uh, these days here in American politics. Like I said, my name is Peter Ogburn, sitting in for Bill Press today. Of course, I couldn't do it by myself. Ray Rogers running the board. Hello, Ray. Hi. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Good morning. McKenna is also here. Also, Monty keeping us on video. Ray, let me ask you a question. Shoot. When is the last time you used cash? Do you use cash that much? I don't use it that much, but the last time I used it was last week. Okay, last week. It's uncommon. Ago. Yeah, it's, I don't use it that often, right? Uh, and I find myself, I used to have this, it's like a dad move, like, oh, I need to have some folding money in my pocket all oh, the time. Oh, me too, always. Right? Always, right? Always. And I, you know, I'll get out like 40 bucks or something just to have emergency money. I've had the same 40 bucks in my pocket like forever. 
Yeah, I, I just carry don't spend a 20 it. and I don't spend it. Um, just never spend it. But I never leave the house without some cash on my always have on some my cash. body. It's always a good idea to have some cash. But it's becoming easier and easier to live without cash. Uh, so I did this story a couple of weeks ago how Major League Baseball, Tampa Bay Rays, said that their stadium, Tropicana Field, they went totally cashless. And now an even bigger stadium, the Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta, announced that they are going to go cashless. This is where the Atlanta Falcons play, but also this is where like a lot of huge, like the college football national championship is probably gonna is gonna take place there. Uh, the Super Bowl uh, took place there this uh, this last year. They announced they are going cashless. Hot take. I hate this. Do you? Yes. As a kid, I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have. A credit card. And even if I were a kid today, I think my parents are the type where I still wouldn't have a cell phone or a credit card. And they would always give me cash when I went out with my friends. What if like something like the movie theater goes cashless? That's terrible. I think, though, that kids today are different. They have chips in their hands. Yeah. I mean, I mean, no, I mean, you make a joke, but like no, that's but actually that's that's kind of where we're going. Like there will be. Like, kids today are going to grow up not knowing what cash is, right? I shouldn't say kids today, but, like, the next generation of children, cash will be dead. And you're right. They may very well have a, a, a chip implanted in their hands, so they just go, bing, to go to the movies. Just like that. Just like that. It probably will. I mean, so, like, I hear you. I, I, I do sort of get a little nostalgic about cash, but also, like, they don't use nobody uses cash anymore. Cash is dead. Cash is dead. But as long as there's, like, a way to track people, I feel like people will still prefer cash. Can't track me. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, we'll talk about that and, oh, gosh, all the other news out there coming up. Stay tuned. Just a really, really quick break. We'll be YouTube, same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. All right, everybody. My name is Peter Ogburn, sitting in for Bill Press today here on a Tuesday, March 5th. We got so much news to get through today, and we're going to do it with the help of a lot of great guests who will be coming up later on in the program. But for now, you are stuck with me. We are tweeting live at BP Show, at BP Show. Make sure you give us uh, some comments there. I'm also on Twitter, at Peter Ogburn. I don't tweet that much, so follow the show first. Uh, if you didn't listen, or if you don't listen to the podcast, you don't get to hear the first five minutes of banter that we have on the show, and it's usually like a kind of an off-the-wall story. Uh, we just talked about how the society, we are going cashless. We've already gotten a ton of comments on this. First of all, Phil. Uh, our buddy Phil found us on Twitter. He says, I still, might, I still pay my barber in cash. But that's pretty much it. Um, I, I don't pay my, first of all, I go to a salon. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But uh, I, I pay I pay the woman who cuts my hair. She I, I pay her in, uh, with a credit card, but I always give her a tip in cash. So I keep the, I, I, I try and tip in cash. That's, that's really the only place that I reliably always use cash is I tip people with cash. Is it because you want them to have that money for sure without yes. a doubt? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, because- 
for uh, different like restaurants or mm-hmm. or services, whoever you're tipping, right? Like they do things differently. So like the restaurant business, a lot of times if you put it down as a credit card tip, you pay with your credit card, you put it down on a tip. It'll go into a pool, and then there have been hundreds of stories about restaurant owners stealing tips from workers. And if you just give a, a waiter or waitress or you know whoever a, a cash tip, it's a lot harder for your employer to get their grubby little greedy hands on it. Uh, so I always try and tip in cash. Um, Romaine, my man Romaine from Chicago, says uh, – uh, Peter, a beard game is on point today. Whoa, they can tell it's glistening. It is glistening. We had it a is. whole conversation before we went on air because I have a beard oil and beard lube situation. Hang on, I have to show you. I have to show you. Because I have my it's not a makeup bag, but I have my bag that has my my beard. A very inconspicuous not pot bag because there's definitely no pot in there. There's also pot in here. But I also <laughs> but there's a but I also keep all of my cosmetics in there. So I have, like, my hair stuff, which I don't really use because I'm wearing a hat right now. And I have my beard lube and my beard oil. You could say it's just the essentials. Just the essentials. It's just the essentials, including definitely not pot. Definitely, definitely not pot. And $40 in cash. And $40 in cash. Yes, exactly. But Romaine also says, uh, I always keep about $100 stashed in my wallet. Damn, all right. Go. All right. Uh, preferably with one bill, just in case a few other loose dollars, just in case. Uh, so some people do still keep cash on them, but the whole story came from the fact that Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta is going completely cashless. Uh, and, and I agree with you. I'm a little nostalgic about having cash in my pocket, but I also recognize that everything's changed. It's the way of the future. Everything's changed. There's still tons of restaurants around though that are cash only. Which, I wouldn't say there are tons, but I guess, there are some. Well, like mom and pop shops, yeah. a lot of them are still cash, yeah. especially like in New York. Yeah, yeah. They're, they, but for the most part. Times are a changing, Peter. Buckle up. I know. I know. Yeah, I get it. All right. Uh, find us on Twitter at BP Show or find me on Twitter at Peter Ogburn. We, we've already got a, a lot of comments about. Um, uh, the cashless society, and we appreciate those. We'll read some of those in just a little while. He's back at it, ladies and gentlemen. Our big wet president last night. He, uh, okay, so first of all, I didn't even know this was a thing, but there was a uh, celebration at the White House last night because Donald Trump was celebrating the FCS champions. So this is the football championship subdivision? Which, it's college football, and I guess these are the teams that are not good enough to actually play in, like, real college football. So, the North Dakota State Bison won the FCF championship. That, that Literally never heard of it. Literally, I've never heard of it. And so, Donald Trump invited them to the White House. Now, remember, it was, uh, Christ, it was, what, a couple months ago that uh, he had the Clemson Tigers the filthy Clemson Tigers, uh, who beat the Alabama Crimson Tide in the National Championship football game. He had them to the White House, and he served them a bunch of fast food. And we talked about how amazing this was at the time because it showed the reason that he had to do that was because they were in the middle of a government shutdown, and they didn't have a White House kitchen staff to prepare an actual banquet for these champions. 
It turns out that was all BS. No, that wasn't the reason. It just turns out that Donald Trump just actually really likes fast food. So, again, they showed up last night to this uh, uh, banquet at the White House, and they had a huge spread of McDonald's and Chick-fil-A. Donald Trump talking about it yesterday. We could have had chefs, we could have, but we got fast food. <laughs> because we know what. I know you people very well. Okay? <laughs> so the, uh, one thing I just want to point out about all of this, right, and you know I hate the Clemson Tigers, but Clemson in particular, right, when they went to the White House and he fed them a bunch of garbage, they are one of the uh, college football teams, and it, this list is growing, by the way, they actually have nutritionists on staff, right? So when you have these gigantic human beings that play football and they're exerting themselves uh, so much, you want to make sure that they're getting everything that they need. You want to make sure they're not under-eating or over-eating or anything like that. So they have people who very meticulously track what they eat, and they put them on very specific diets from, like, the giant 350-pound offensive linemen to the very quick, you know, uh, defensive backs. You know, they want to make sure that everybody's getting what they need, and plus you're lifting a lot of weight, you're exerting yourself a ton. So you want to make sure that the food that you're eating is very, very healthy and good for you. And college football is not all about just gorging yourself on heavily salted, deep-fried snacks. Don't tell that to Donald Trump because he just thinks that all they want to do is eat fried chicken sandwiches and Big Macs. And literally what he served them yesterday. Stacks and stacks and stacks of Chick-fil-A sandwiches and Big Macs. That's what he served to the uh, who's this? The North Dakota State Bison. I mean, congratulations. Being like the... I feel like it's saying something that you've never heard of this subdivision as someone who follows college football. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of follow college football. I follow it. In, I mostly just follow my one team. Uh, but, like, I've never, heard, I've never heard of it. I mean, congratulations on being the 80th best team in the country. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, they, they didn't – they don't qualify. I don't – anyway. Um, so he's there. Donald Trump is there meeting these football players. And once again, he couldn't help himself. He had to get into this whole collusion uh, situation and for whatever reason he's really grabbed on to what Michael Cohen said the other day at his hearing where he sort of talked about no collusion there was no evidence of collusion so Donald Trump says Michael Cohen was lying about every single thing that he said except for that and again he repeated this to a bunch of college football players this is like that great just let's play the clip this is where he talks about no collusion I cooperate all the time with everybody. And you know the beautiful thing? No collusion. It's all a hoax. You're going to learn about that as you grow older. It's a political hoax. There's no collusion. There's no anything. Folks, go and eat up. Go and eat up. Go and eat up. Walk up to the trough and just start shoveling in this crap into your mouth. And also, like... It's like that great internet thing. He's just like he's got all these football players there to eat food, and it's just like whining and complaining about collusion. It's like, sir, this is an Arby's. Why are you complaining about collusion right now? Like nobody cares. These guys don't care. You're gonna learn about it as you grow older. They're grown men. The 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 the, the, the eyes with which he sees the world are amazing to me. 
he also, while he was there, uh, talked about the tornadoes in Alabama. Uh, it, it, there will be more fatalities, sadly, uh, that will be reported. The death toll, death toll still stands at 23. Uh, we're seeing some pictures of the devastation. Uh, and, you know, I just have to point out, and I, I know this, again, is like uh, my realization that I am aging. <laughs> But, like, the photos and the footage of the destruction there that is now we're now able to see because of drones and things like that is stunning because these are areas that cars can't necessarily even get to yet. And we're seeing just it looks like a bomb went off, like a giant bomb went off in these cities and our towns. And uh, he talked about yesterday how he is instructing FEMA to send everything they have down to Alabama. I've directed FEMA to provide immediate assistance to the great state of Alabama. They're in there in full force, and whatever we can do, we're doing. Uh, yeah, just like he did with Puerto Rico, right? I was going to say, just contrast this with the treatment of black and brown bodies who live not far away and are Americans. Well, look, there are a lot of black and brown bodies that died in Alabama, I'm certain yes. of that. But, you know, you look at Puerto Rico and what he did with FEMA and how he handled that. Uh, compared to Alabama, um, you know, it's it's nice when they show you exactly who they are. You know, when these people say these things, it's it's nice that we get to know exactly where they stand. Okay, let's talk some uh, 2020 stuff. We'll get back to some of the Trump stuff in just a second. Uh, because there was, a, there was a lot of stuff yesterday. Yesterday during the program, uh, the first video came out of John Hickenlooper announcing that he was going to run for president. He's the former mayor, uh, former governor. Uh, here he is talking about why he thinks he can beat Trump. Ultimately, I'm running for president because I believe that not only can I beat Donald Trump, but that I am the person that can bring people together on the other side and actually get stuff done. <laughs> Wrong answer, John. Were you even awake during 2016? Uh, this is uh, 2016, uh, 2012, 2008. Keep going back. There is no winning the other side. The other side hates your guts, and they're not going to come over to you, okay? Like, there are plenty of people in the middle who think that they are Republicans, but when you talk about working with Republican lawmakers to try and get stuff done, buddy, I think you need to pay closer attention. And look, I want to be very, very clear. I think the more people that get in, the better. I don't, I, I really, if you think you can run for president, you can make a case, go for it. That's fine. I'm all into a giant primary and then having three different primary debates where they all get to hash out these issues. I think it's wonderful. And if John Hickenlooper can make the case, more power to him. He hasn't made the case to me. Uh, and... I'm just not sure how well that's going to resonate. Also, uh, a guy that I think is running a very uh, good campaign so far in the early stages of this is Mayor Pete, Pete Buttigieg from Indiana. Um, he sort of has taken the populism and uh, I'll stop short of saying democratic socialism, but there is some of that. I mean, he's taking big, bold, he's making big, bold ideas and taking them public. He talked about statehood for Puerto Rico. He talked about uh, voting rights for Washington, D.C. He's talked about decriminalizing marijuana. And when you talk about 
where we are in terms of wealth in this country. I think he hit the head, hit the nail on the head yesterday when he was speaking in Iowa. You know, if we got to choose between taxing work and taxing wealth, I'd rather be taxing wealth within reason. That that's right. That's absolutely right. And that's one of these things that Republicans have been so cunning about making you the worker pay and make up for the losses that billionaires aren't paying, right? Like Republicans have done a great job of convincing you that you should pay more taxes, but these very, very wealthy should not be paying taxes. It's time to fight fire with fire on that and stop acting like we have to be nice to the billionaires and be nice to the Republicans. Tax the wealthy. Tax the wealthy, not the workers. That, that's a pretty good slogan. That's a pretty good slogan. I'm not, I'm not throwing my support behind anybody right now, but I can say Mayor Pete is doing a pretty good job right now and especially talking uh, 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 pretty well about this type of stuff. Also on the 2020 news front, uh, we just have to play this because uh, Hillary Clinton yesterday, News 12 Westchester, she gave an interview where she made it official. I'm not running, but I'm going to keep working and speaking and standing up for what I believe. Okay, so we can put that all behind us now. All these reporters that keep wanting to write these sensational stories about how she might be running and all the former Clinton staffers who are trying to... uh, uh, you know, they still have sour grapes about the 2016 election and what Bernie Sanders did, or they're just like wishing for Hillary Clinton to run again so that they could, these grifters could get another paycheck. We could finally put it to rest, right? She's not running. She's not going to run. All right. Can we move on now, everybody? Nobody should write the story. If I see one more story written about Hillary Clinton might run in 2020, I'm going to lose my mind. It's over. It's over, Johnny. It's over. <laughs> what about 2024? She didn't say she's She not, didn't say yeah. 2024. You know, that's a good point. That's the story I'm going to pitch. That's a good point. Here's here's my take. Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton should go retire and go away. Okay? Enjoy retirement. You had thank you for your service. Uh you did a lot of damage to this country as president, Bill Clinton. Uh Hillary Clinton was a terrible candidate in 2016 and gave us Donald Trump. I'm fine if they retire. Okay? Bye. Uh, Also, will the Senate, the Republican Senate, vote to shut down Donald Trump's national emergency declaration? Well, it's not quite that simple because the House has voted to shut it down. Uh, The Republican Senate will now get a chance to vote on it. And... It looks like it's going to fail. It looks like the Republicans are going to say, no, you can't do this national emergency declaration. So, again, when I talked earlier about how I love it when these folks just take the masks off and they show you, you know, who they are. Mitch McConnell is the greatest at this because Donald Trump is has declared a national emergency. Mitch McConnell says, I wish that he hadn't done that. As I've said publicly earlier, I was one of those uh, hoping the president would not take the national emergency route. Okay, great. Great. So that means he's going to vote for it, right? Once you decide to do that, I said I would support it. Oh. I was hoping he wouldn't take that particular path. You know, what a hypocrite. 
you've got some power. You've got a leg to stand on. And also, this is exactly what your job is. This is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be some sort of backbone here. And yet, Mitch McConnell certainly won't do it. I will give Rand Paul a little bit of credit if he actually follows through on this. I want to play the second clip first, Ray, because you know we knew that um, Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, said they were going to vote uh, against uh, Donald Trump on this national emergency declaration. We learned last week that Thom Phyllis was also going to vote against it. Rand Paul was the latest to say he was possibly going to vote against it. But Rand Paul says it's not just those four. I do believe that there is uh, at least 10 Republican no votes. We'll see possibly more. 10? 10 other Republican senators? Possibly more? I wish he had named names, but we'll see soon. I mean, there will be a roll call of who votes on this, and we'll be able to see which Republicans actually understand what their job is. And also, just from a standpoint here, I don't want to give Republicans any kind of like uh, advice here, but the obvious uh, answer here is uh, you allow this to happen, you lose the high ground whenever a Democratic president tries to do something like this. And I give Rand Paul, I give uh, Tom Phyllis, I give them all the credit, right? They understand that if they allow Trump to do this, they are, in essence, allowing the next Democratic president to do this, whoever that may be. Uh, so I appreciate that they understand that. But you get that much credit. Tiny, tiny, tiny bit of credit. Okay. Rand Paul also says, uh, you know, there are things that are actual emergencies that a president can use. Most of us think it would be emergency if, you know, there's a television show where the State of the Union, everything blows up and everybody dies. That would be an emergency. You know, people incapacitated by anthrax, that's an emergency. Why do these guys get all their big ideas from TV shows, first of all? Second of all, why are you giving Trump supporters more ideas, right? Like, we've seen a couple of different rogue tr Trump supporters uh, try and uh, spread terrorism by sending bombs to members of the media. You had this Coast Guard lieutenant uh, a couple of weeks ago that was stockpiling guns and looking for places where he could kill members of Congress. Stop giving them ideas, Rand Paul. Because some of them might actually hear that and think, oh, well, I can actually just ease up, okay? Ease up. We talked yesterday uh, about Jerry Nadler. By the way, I just have to point, I, I have to mention, uh, This American Life, great podcast. It's a, t it's a show. It's a radio show, but they, they put it out as a podcast. Uh, this past weekend, they had a great episode that was all about, I think it was called Scrambling on the Ice. And they do a whole uh, um, feature about Jerry Nadler and the inner workings of his office. Uh, now that uh, he's got some power on the Judiciary Committee, he ha he's the guy with the subpoena power. And they specifically go look at, um, you might remember the hearing a couple of weeks ago when Matthew Whitaker 
came up and famously told Jerry Nadler that his five minutes was up and he was no longer able to talk, right? That was the big takeaway from that. But they, they go behind the scenes of how that hearing came to be and how careful and thoughtful uh, Jerry Nadler is with what he does in that office. Well, yesterday, Jerry Nadler did what he said he was going to do. Uh, a whole new investigation into Trump on Monday. They served document requests to 81 agencies, entities, and individuals. It's a new probe that looks at the, quote, alleged obstruction of justice, public corruption, and other abuses of power by President Trump, end quote. That's, that's how they put it. So Jerry Nadler is doing what he was elected to do. He is a check uh, for the executive branch. We're going to find out exactly uh, what he's looking for and what he's looking at uh, in the coming weeks and months. Okay, so uh, we're going to talk to Andrew Restucia from Politico here in just a moment, and I, I want to talk about uh, this huge story from The New Yorker. Jane Mayer, who is uh, amazing as a writer, uh wrote about the, I think it's called like the Fox News White House and how Donald Trump is essentially running and run by Fox News. They are they are a symbiotic relationship, the two of them. So here are a couple of different revelations from the piece that she wrote. Uh, Rupert Murdoch and Jared Kushner communicate, quote, like every day, is what one source told Mayer. So they are messaging with Fox News. You understand uh, according to Ann Coulter, Trump offered to call Rupert Murdoch and told him to put Ann Coulter back on Fox News. Think about that. President of the United States, these are the fish he has to fry. He has to try and get Ann Coulter more TV time. Um, the other, the most damning part of the story is Donald Trump's vendetta against CNN. Now, AT&T had a planned acquisition to buy uh, CNN's parent company, Time Warner, and Donald Trump didn't like it. Now, why didn't he like it? Well, because it would give CNN uh, uh, more power, in, in other words, more visibility, for sure. So, Trump quote I'm going to read directly from her piece. Ordered Gary Cohn, who served as the director of the National Economic Council, to pressure the Justice Department to intervene, end quote, in AT&T's planned acquisition of Time Warner. According to Mayer, he told then-Chief of Staff John Kelly, quote, I've been telling Cohn to get this lawsuit filed and nothing's happened. I want to make sure it's filed. I want that deal blocked, end quote. Cohn walked out of the meeting with uh, Donald Trump, with Kelly, and according to Jane Mayer, said, quote, don't you effing dare call the Justice Department. We're not going to do business that way, end quote. So there's a lot of talk about, you know, uh, Donald Trump's obstruction of justice and collusion and uh, abuse of power, right? You hear that phrase, abuse of power, all the time. And that, that part of that gets into what Jerry Nadler the case that Jerry Nadler uh, opened up yesterday. This is an abuse of power in black and white. It's right there. He's trying to uh, hinder 
CNN because he doesn't like them. The president of the United States is trying to get his people to talk to the Justice Department to intervene in this merger. This is bananas. This is bananas. He wants a lawsuit filed to shut this down, all because CNN... And look, I'm not a huge fan of CNN. I'm not here to talk about how great CNN is. I'm just saying CNN reports the truth about Donald Trump. Sometimes they do it in a little bit of a grandiose fashion. I'll give I'll give Donald Trump that. But it's it's never fake news. It's just news he doesn't like. And so because he reports news that they that he doesn't like, they report news that he doesn't like, and Fox News gives the I look at Fox News right now. Historian makes the case for Trump. Like that's insane. I, I that was I just looked up and it just happened to be up there, right? So they have a historian on who is telling their audience in prime time morning television why Donald Trump is good. How is that news? What news value do you get out of that? Is there any news value out of that? Fox News is just an extension of the propaganda mouthpiece that Trump is carefully constructing via Sarah Sanders, Kellyanne Conway, Fox News, all of this. It's, I mean, look, I know that people, especially our people in the chat room, uh, YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show and on Twitter at BP Show, they always talk about the state-run media that is Fox News. But, like, yeah, it is. No bad news about the president ever on Fox News. Uh, and because of that, he, he tried, and because CNN actually reports the bad news, which happens to be true about Donald Trump, uh, he wanted to shut down this merger. That is an abuse of power, plain as day. There it is, right in front of you. Lots and lots and lots of stuff to talk about. Let's talk to a White House reporter for Politico. He is Andrew Restucia. He's going to be in studio here in just a moment, so stay tuned. Very, very quick break. Give me your comments on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. I am reading them all throughout the program. We'll get some of them in uh, here in just a moment. Stay tuned, everybody. Live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. All right, everybody. Thank you very much for tuning in. It is The Bill Press Show. My name is Peter Ogburn. Uh, thank you for tuning in couple of comments on Twitter really quickly before we get to our guest, Andrew Restucia from Politico. Hey, Andrew, thanks for coming in. Yeah, no problem. Uh, on Twitter, at BP Show. You know, I talked about John Hickenlooper. I, I find it hard to get super excited about John Hickenlooper at this point. He can make his case. But somebody pointed out, uh, Viejo Verde says, weed became legal in Colorado under Hickenlooper. Hick for president. <laughs> I will point out that John Hickenlooper did fight some of the weed stuff in Colorado. So... It's great. It did happen under him, and he, and he didn't fight it once it became the will of the people, but he was not super thrilled about it. Since we're coining slogans here, Hickenlooper, a greener future. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, there you go, with the weed. All right. I, yeah, all right. Uh, I, I'm into it. Uh, also, uh, Art Rochester says, the only problem with a big field running for president is the winner must have 50% to win the first primary. Superdelegates will, will decide the winner in the second primary. Uh, okay, that's a fair point. Uh, and Michael says, Peter, talk about Omar, Elon Omar, and how Democrats are playing dirty politics on her. I'll get into that later. <laughs> I'll get into that later. It's, there's a lot going on there. 
Uh, but stay tuned because I would like to talk about that a little bit. Andrew Restuccia from Politico joins us uh, as always here with his Washington Nationals hat. Have you burned your Bryce Harper jersey yet? Uh, not, not yet, but it's been a, it's been, there's been a temptation for sure. Yeah, I'm frankly <laughs> glad to see him go at this point. Yeah, I mean it was such a long drawn out thing. It really was. Yeah, right. What was that? It I was know. insane. And he's making a ton of money, so good for him. So much money. Yeah. Look, I hope that Bryce Harper gives the Phillies. 13 seasons, exactly like the one that he gave the Nationals last season. <laughs> right, exactly. All right, yeah. and then we'll, we'll, I'll be fine with that move. Yeah. Uh, well, I want to pick up on uh, something I was just talking about, this Jane Mayer piece in The New Yorker, uh, and it was all about the Fox News presidency, how Donald Trump has essentially turned the White House into um, the D.C. Bureau of Fox News. Um, what were some of your biggest takeaways from that piece? I, I read a couple of them. The big one to me was the CNN merger. Yeah, I mean, that was, <clears throat> if you're thinking about something that will have an impact, I mean, I think that's the biggest one. Um, already you're seeing House Democrats talking about trying to bring uh, Mark Del Rahim, who's the sort of antitrust chief at the Justice Department, potentially before um, one of their committees, that would you know, put him in a tough spot because he's essentially said on the record in the past, as have other Justice Department officials, that the president didn't try to intervene in this. And if they bring him up and try to put him under oath, he's going to be in a position of having to either confirm or deny what what Jane, what Jane wrote. Um, and there's a, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that people put. Uh, I mean, a lot of them are anonymous sources, but there's a mm -hmm. lot of stuff on the record there from folks. Oh yeah, I mean, and and the kind of bigger picture takeaway, right, is just. It's remarkable to see, I mean, some of this we've known for a long time, right? I mean, anyone who's following, following this, we've known for a long time. But when you see everything sort of put together in such a comprehensive way, I mean, you know, what we're seeing now with the Trump administration and Fox News and the blurred lines between them is really um, unlike anything we've ever seen. In fact, I think the, the, the most striking, one of the more striking lines in the story was about how it's the closest thing that we've come to state TV um, in the United States in U.S. history. So I, I, people always talk about Fox News as state-run state run media, right? And I get that. I totally get that. I actually think that it's a media-run state in a right. lot of ways because one of the lines that she wrote in her piece was, quote, White House aides confirm that Trump has repeatedly walked away from compromises at the last moment because Fox hosts and guests oppose the deal, end and, quote. And that's definitely true. I mean, we've, yeah, we've written course. that repeatedly. I mean, you've seen it. You know, I think a great example and one that she cites in the story is last year's, you know, $1.3 trillion spending bill, which Trump, you know, was all in for. And then Fox News, you know, basically threw a fit about, you know, how, how much spending there was. And then they, you know, uh, Trump, he eventually signed it. But then there was this whole period of like where he said he, he might veto it and like all of his aides at the last minute had to come and talk him out of it. And. You know, I think Mattis came over and said, you know, this is all about, uh, you know, defense. And if you if you veto this, we're going to be, you know, screwed as a country. And ultimately he signed it, but he made it very clear that he didn't want to. Yeah. Um, you know, and this is a separate thing. But we're going to be having another one of those fights this year. And and I think it will be a very different, you know, Donald Trump. I think he's going to be much more reluctant to sign anything. It's really terrifying. Uh, every time that some sort of profile is written about the relationship that Donald Trump has with Fox News or or uh, runs the White House or any of that stuff, just how temperamental he is about this stuff, right? Like, there's no, like, you would like to think that somebody who is president has the temperament to not just, like, throw a fit and walk away, right? But, like, he, 
this is his move. This is how he operates. Yeah, and it's been how he operates, you know, dating back to the campaign, right? I mean, and, dating back to the 1980s, right? But, you know, yeah, it's, this is who he is. Particularly once he became, I mean, he, you know, and I think he even would admit this. I mean, he's not uh, really an ideologue, right? I mean, he. No. He does what he thinks uh, is gonna is gonna get him or, or help him win, right? Yeah, Ultimately, yeah, that's yeah. his sort of the through line of of who he is as, as a as a person. I think uh, one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about was a great piece, Politico.com. Politico.com. Go read this. Uh, deficit swelling. Trump White House plans to use the deficit against Democrats. So just to be clear, we talked about this extensively when this was all being debated. And when uh, Republicans pushed through the tax cuts uh, that they are not super thrilled about running again, running on uh, anymore. But that exploded the national debt. Mm-hmm. And now Donald Trump is going to use that against the Democrats. Yeah. How's that going to work? I mean, who knows how it's going to work. But I mean, so they're coming up into this period of over the next six months where there are just a number of spending budget fights that are going to be happening. They're going to have to deal with sequestration. They're going to have to propose a budget. They're going to have to come up with some, another spending deal. I haven't thought of that word in a long time. Uh, yeah, it's the last. It's, been a while. it's the last uh, time they're going to have to raise the budget caps, which is you know kind of wonky. But I just had one of yeah. those like it's the opposite of an acid flashback. <laughs> it was like oh god, sequestration. Right. Ah! <laughs> Yeah, and they, like, they've spent the first two years in office. Basically, they signed one of the biggest spending bills ever, yeah. uh, and then they, you know, pushed the tax reform bill, which you know you can make you can say a lot about it, but there's no doubt that it, it increased the debt by you know trillions of dollars. It increased the debt, right? Yes. So it's, it's a, it was a huge. It was very outside of the traditional conservative fiscal conservative mindset for Republicans, but they decided to do it anyway. And now you have you know the top budget official in uh, the White House basically writing this op-ed saying. Uh, the federal deficit is is swelling. The national debt is a mess. Where we have a huge spending problem, and you know we want to make sure that Democrats don't overspend, and we're going to try to keep them from uh, increasing what's called in in budget terms non defense uh, non defense discretionary yeah. funds, which is basically all the things that Democrats really care about. You know, environmental funding, education, health care. Um, so they're going to basically use that to try to deny de- Democrats. I mean, it's probably dead on dead on, dead on arrival. I mean, at, at the end of the day, whatever the budget. The president's budget is it's you know not usually what passes but it, we we always talk about that you know <laughs> like the the president's budget is is should never be taken too seriously yeah but it also does give you an idea of it uh, the Reverend Jim Wallace who's on the show often and who has a podcast he talks about uh, the president's budget is a moral document mm-hmm. sort of shows where their priorities lie where they think that it should be and and in that sense it's um. It's at least worth the attention, right? And it's, it won't be a surprise what they propose. They're going to pro- propose a huge increase in defense spending. I mean, that's what Trump's ran on. That's what he's been talking about. And they're going to propose a huge cut and all the rest. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Um, we were talking uh, off air before you came, b- before we started this segment uh, about CPAC. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you didn't go. I did not go. No, I ended up writing about the president's uh, two-hour kind of barnstormer speech, but I did not go. No. I still keep coming back to this fact that it was his longest—the longest speech of his presidency. Was it? I I, I missed that. It wow, was officially the longest yeah. speech of his presidency. He must have given longer ones during the campaign, right? Uh, or is that does it counting that too? I, I you know I don't know. That's a yeah. good question. I, I know it's officially the longest one he's given as president. Mm-hmm. I, I I would f- I feel like he's there given were a couple some really long. Yeah. Just you know, it, get him in a. You know, 
get him in a uh, amphitheater somewhere and oh, just yeah. let him talk. Yeah, yeah. I think that I think you're probably <clears throat> right. But um, you know, it, it, this was you put him in front of a crowd who loves, or at least acts like they love every single word that he says. Uh, what were your big takeaways from his speech? From his speech at CPAC. Well, first of all, I think it's important to note the irony of like the pure adulation that Trump gets at CPAC because you know over the years and and when he was running for president, certainly I mean there was a huge amount of doubt in the conservative community about the president, right? I mean he at one point uh, supported um, uh, uh, women's right to choose on abortion, right? I mean like there were, these are issues that he there are a lot of like fundamental core issues that he's sort of flip-flopped on over time. But now, you you know, fast forward two years, you get to CPAC and, you know, there's no, at least, you know, in, in this audience, there are no doubters, you know, like questioning that, right? So I think the first thing is just he, he he was greeted as a hero and he knew that and he had come off a really tough week last week, obviously, with the Cohen stuff and the failed North Korea summit. Yeah. And these are now his people and he can go there and, and not have to worry about anybody questioning him or criticizing him or protesting him or pointing out all the things that have gone wrong, and instead he can just, you know, hug an American flag and, you know, do his whole spiel. Literally, literally bear-hugged yeah. an American flag. <laughs> yeah, right. Which is just the weirdest picture of, of him doing that. Right, I mean, like, he... The thing is, like, none, he doesn't do anything by accident, right? Like, he knew that, yeah. that would no, be the they, takeaway. They'll eat like, that like, up. Yeah, they'll eat that exactly. up. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's the most good. sort of basic thing he could do to you know impress that crowd but it was interesting because it was almost i mean look the 2020 race for the presidency has begun mm -hmm. we are yeah. underway uh so you could sort of see him putting some meat on the bones of his campaign of where it's going right. to go right so what did we see we saw a lot of i mean we saw socialism socialism that's Lots of be socialism. The big sort of through line uh it's not a new argument for republicans they've been saying it for years like remember the whole obamacare fight and well before that but yeah, this is going to. By the be way, yeah, the Obamacare, which was socialism <clears throat> then, but is now beloved by just about everybody now. Right, it's uh, amazing how Democrats, that I feel in general, aren't particularly worried about the socialism uh, attack. They feel like it's you know kind of this tried and true Republican talking point. Let me ask you uh, this though, before because I want to get into yeah. some of the other stuff we talked about. But on the socialism front, does that signal that they are most concerned about a Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren type candidate in twenty twenty that they're already sort of shooting their shot on the socialism thing? I don't know. I mean, I think I think if you talk to people in the White House, they're more concerned about uh, a kind of middle-of-the-road <clears throat> candidate like uh, a Biden, um, someone like a Klobuchar, you know, prior to the whole uh, dust-up about her treating her employees um, because they feel like that can actually eat into the president's uh, potential voting bloc. I don't understand that. Yeah. I mean, I just don't see it. I don't but get I, it. But I don't necessarily either, but I think if you talk to them, that's the people yeah. that they're most, sure. uh, you know, and I think, I think, you know, there's a kind of confusing argument to be made that like Biden's going to be appealing to this sort of white working class, disaffected, you know, like that's going to be his shtick and, you know, that's sort of on Trump's territory, but, you know, there's a lot of subtlety there that like, we don't I need to get to, into. But, I used to yeah. think that, but I'm not so sure I believe that. Anymore. Yeah. Um, but I think they think it's just an easy target yeah. for, to you know to go after this this stuff, and you know, they're also you know they're in lockstep with 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 members of Congress, Republican members of Congress who have also been kind of going after the AOCs and the, and the Green New Deal and all that. Yeah. Um, so so he did uh, talk about the Green New Deal. Mm -hmm. uh, That's his new new kind of target, I think. Yeah. It's yeah. A new, it's you know it's kind of an easy target for Republicans because it's you know there's 
uh, it's a huge proposal, and like even members of Congress are kind of confused about exactly what it does at times. Uh, there are different versions of it, different iterations. So yeah, the Green New Deal yeah. doesn't really exist. It's like an idea. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. really is. A, I mean, Nancy Pelosi called it the Green Dream. Right. Uh, but also, like, it is at this point just sort of an idea. Like, that's you right. know, it's and, and you know, the people who are proposing it are open about that, right? I mean, they're yeah. they're trying to you know get people talking about you know what something like this might. Oh look wait, like but we're gonna ban hamburgers right. and AOC rode in a car once, so she couldn't possibly support mm-hmm. the Green New Deal. This is this is so right. What's happening right now with the Green New Deal is so like two thousand eight, two thousand seven, cap damn, and trade. Yeah, absolutely, man. You know, no, it is. It, it just is so reminiscent of those days. Um, you know, and Pelosi's aware of that because if you remember the you know she she forced the House to take a really tough vote on cap and trade. And as a result, um, you know, some of the moderate uh, Democrats uh, in the House lost lost races because of it. So I think she's she's remembering those years, too. And, and as, as a result, like you've seen publicly, she's, she's very cautious about the Green New Deal. I, I, I've said this before about the Green New Deal, which I think is an amazing idea. I think it's one of these, like I said before, I think people are looking for a big idea like the Green New Deal. I think that the Democratic Party is going to have to... Uh, take a page out of the uh, Fox News White House and, like, really get some talking points together on mm-hmm. it. They're yeah. really going to have to start talking about it knowledgeably and in a way that appeals to everybody. And I've always said, like, the Green New Deal, realistically, I think one of the biggest selling points is it's an infrastructure plan. Right. It's an infrastructure and plan. And that's something that Trump supposedly wants to do, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. You know, and, and that's one of the very rare issues of commonality between Trump and Pelosi. Is something that they've talked about as a potential you know, I mean, in, in broad terms, I mean, like, these things never actually, there's not, like, a real kumbaya moment when you get down to the details. But Yeah. Uh, Donald Trump, did he go back to some of his old hits, like uh, undocumented immigrants and the wall and all of that? Yeah, I mean, he did. You know, I mean, this is like a tr- this is kind of a trial run for what his campaign speeches are going to look like. We kind of know we've known for a long time. He's been doing basically campaign speeches from the moment he came into office. But, yeah, he did. He did the, you know, we're being invaded by immigrants uh, spiel and he, you know, he did kind of all of his greatest hits, and you know, he, there were there were also a lot of really weird moments where he just went totally. That's where I wanted to go script. next. Uh, the raisin cane. I was going to ask about the raisin <laughs> cane. What what was yeah. that? So apparently, there is a, um, uh, you know, a military officer general. I think that does have go by the last name of Kane. We were trying to, you know, I was writing the story. I was trying to figure out if this person was actually real. Um, he so was it, talking about Tim Kane. <laughs> right, no, I'm kidding. Yeah. I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, there is a guy with the last name Kane. Uh, I think his first name is David, uh, but but don't quote me on that. And and he maybe goes by Raisin. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> it was confusing. And he, he went on, he went on for a long time about it. And uh, you know, it, it played to the audience at CPAC, but it doesn't take much to to delight them in, in that kind of environment. I, I want to read this paragraph from the piece that you wrote at Politico.com with uh, Nancy Cook. Uh, quote: At one point, Trump regaled the crowd with a story about a general. He said was named Raisin Cane, parentheses. It was not immediately clear who he was referring to. (laughs) He said he always sits with the pilots when airplanes are landing. Quote, they know what we're doing, end quote. What, What was that? No, I have me, no let, idea. Let me finish. Let me let me finish <laughs> yeah. this paragraph. He boasted about his good eyesight and later added, quote, I don't have a white hair, end quote. He derided a Hawaii senator as a crazy person. Well, there are only two. Right. Um, I could guess he probably means the woman. Uh, and he accused Hollywood of discriminating against conservatives. Okay. There's a lot to digest there. Um, it's a lot of red meat, right? Uh, like, you're right. That's yeah. that's that's where I was going. I mean, they ate it up. Mm-hmm. 
They ate all this up at CPAC. And then the president, I mean, you know, the president doesn't really care about the ramifications of the things that he says uh, in kind of a broad sense. And, you know, when he's in front of a room like that, uh, he's just going to say whatever he, he's gonna, he can say to get the people excited and, and get them on his side. Yeah. And he's been doing that for a, for a long time, you know. I mean, he does. It is interesting, though. Like, he, he really plays to his audience – he knows what people want to hear. You know, when he does a yeah. Rose Garden speech, he, he has a totally different, I mean, he still says sort of sometimes unusual things, but he has a totally different approach to, to speaking versus a rally. That know? is an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> that is an understatement. Right. Uh, okay, so I, you, you referenced this earlier. He had not a great week last week. Last week was not great for him. Between the North Korea summit, which we've talked about a lot, and the Michael Cohen hearing, which we've also talked about a lot. What's the fallout Let's focus on the Cohen hearing. What's the fallout from that within the White House? So, because he was relatively quiet about the Cohen stuff. He tweeted about it and right. said, you know, he, everything was a lie except for this one thing, <laughs> right? About the no collusion. Yeah, I mean, there was this awkward sort of just timing problem for the White House because they were twelve hours uh, ahead in Vietnam during the Cohen hearing. Yeah. Um, you know, many of the aides that I spoke to stayed up and watched it anyway. But it was, you know, like they kind of. They let the, their kind of surrogates, the John Juniors, the Eric Trumps, whoever, to kind of take the lead in, in fighting back. And they were pretty, you know, in lockstep, uh, critical of Cohen. But I think the, the fallout for the White House is, is, is clear at this point. I mean, we saw yesterday, you know, House Democrats put out this giant list. I think it was 81 or 80-something 80, 80 people that they're, that they're requesting documents from. Um, and that is a direct result of, at least in some cases, of the things that, that Michael Cohen said during that hearing, where he, you know, named people in the Trump organization that you know wouldn't be, otherwise be immediately obvious to get documents from, including the president's tax returns and you know uh, corroboration of some of the things that the president, I mean, that uh, Michael Cohen said and alleged during. So really, like you know, what, Mo what Michael Cohen said only matters if it can be corroborated, right? I mean, it yeah. matters in the kind of grand political sense, but it only matters if it can be corroborated, and and. You know, at least if you believe Cohen, I mean, he he laid out a pretty detailed map about how to cor corroborate the things that he said, and you know, House Democrats are willing to do that. And and you you asked about the kind of impact in the White House. I mean, the White House is very angry about the the tactics that the that the House Democrats are taking. And I don't yeah. know if last night Sarah Sanders put out kind of a sassy statement that that sounded a little bit. Trumpian, uh, you know, a lot of her statements occasionally you can tell when the <laughs> yeah, president's yeah, been yeah, involved. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he had and, his hand you know, all over it. was just, it. you know, a scorched earth approach. It was like, you know, how dare they, you know, do this? They're dragging these good people out. You know, they're putting their names out in the public and they deserve privacy and blah, 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 you know. It, it was really telling, I think. I mean, we talked about the House Democrat side, but on the House Republican side, it was really telling that they didn't really have much of a uh, defense, a substantive defense of of Trump, right? And they, this is kind of what they've been doing for years now when they had power. Uh, it, it really was just sort of beating up on Michael Cohn. And I don't know how effective that was. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, our country watches everything through the lens of their own politics sure. right now. So it almost, does, some ways, doesn't matter. But I think, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like people, Nothing matters. People, anyway. Right, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think there there are certainly inconsistencies in in the uh, counter argument that Republicans were making, including, you know, Michael the the fact that Michael Cohen was for so for almost a decade such a core part of of the Trump world, um, you know, and they just basically dismissed him as a a liar and a, and, and someone who can't be trusted, you know, yeah. and, and you know for for all that time, 
he was trusted by this president. So what they didn't really grapple with what what does that say about this president that he would trust someone that they they believe to be uh, so untrustworthy yeah. for so long, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I just think the relationship between Donald Trump and Michael Cohen and the House Republicans and Donald Trump and that whole weird sort of love triangle is uh, is fascinating. Yeah, I just think it's fascinating. I, I feel like that hearing was the closest thing we've we had to the kind of Kavanaugh confirmation hearing yeah. in, in in sort of tone and feel. And obviously, substantially, they're very different. Yeah, but, no, no, I think that's um, absolutely right. Since then, yeah, and also as uh, you know, f- for the American people who now digest uh, political news as theater, right. Uh, it was very similar. It was an all-day affair. Yeah, and think about like if, you, if you're the... not like one of those people that watches cable news every day, you know, like your moments of things that you've you probably pay attention to are Kavanaugh and then this Michael Cohen hearing because it was yeah. such a big deal. And so those are the things you those are your takeaways. Basically, yeah. Andrew Restucia, White House reporter for Politico. Uh, follow him on Twitter at Andrew Restucia. That's Restucia with two C's. Uh, if you're looking to figure out how to spell that, by the way. A little over three weeks away from baseball season, man. I know. All right, so get ready, ready. for it. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're going to take a very, very quick break. We'll be back with another hour. Stay tuned, everybody. This is The Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of The Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show. Or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show. And on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. It is The Bill Press Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. My name is Peter Ogburn, sitting in for Bill Press today. Uh, lots and lots and lots of stuff to talk about. Thanks to Andrew Restucia, who uh, uh, just joined us here for the last half hour. will be joined by our buddy Van Newkirk, who's going to be in studio. There he is. Hey, Van, how you doing, buddy? I'm all right. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> We're going to get into uh, a lot of different stuff. Uh, just an update uh, on the tornadoes in Alabama. Uh, we are still at 23 confirmed dead. Uh, it's a very, very, very sad story. Um, there, there will almost certainly be more casualties. Uh, and, you know, I was talking to someone yesterday. About in 2011, I lost a couple of family members in the tornadoes down there. My my family's all from Alabama, and uh, the the thing, if you've never seen uh, the destructive path that a tornado uh, leaves in its wake, it is it, it, the only way I can describe it is it looks like a, a a very clean bomb went off, because I I had family in the Birmingham area, uh, and we flew in for the funeral. We flew into Huntsville, which is about an hour from. Uh, about an hour from uh, Birmingham. And we're driving uh, down the highway to, to, to get to Birmingham. And on one side, you see this lots of lush forestation. And on the other side, you see just a razor's edge of destruction. 
and you see a ton of trees, and then it's just everything mown down. I mean, just gone. And then you actually get to the city, you know, the towns where these tornadoes are struck, have struck, and uh, it, it's just absolute devastation, absolute devastation. And it's like that gone. Everything you have, you know, you love is gone. There was some heartbreaking video. There's some heartbreaking video I saw yesterday of people saying, "My house is gone, my town is gone, my car is gone, my job is gone, but at least I'm alive." But you have nothing. You have nothing. And Donald Trump yesterday talked when he had um, the North Dakota State Bison to the White House uh, for uh, another fast food party. Uh, He talked about how he's sending FEMA down there. I've directed FEMA to provide immediate assistance to the great state of Alabama. They're in there in full force. And whatever we can do, we're doing. Uh, Puerto Rico saying... Hey, here we are, over here. I wish he had said the same thing to FEMA during the Puerto Rico stuff. Um, But Van uh, Newkirk, our buddy from the Atlantic, uh, in studio with us, we had a lot to talk about. Before we take a a quick break, I just wanted to mention this story because this is just how silly politics are now. The Florida State Senate is discussing a bill. It's called Bill 588. It is a measure that would prevent... Local state entities from put, putting restrictive bans on restaurants over single-use plastics. So you hear all this stuff now about straws, drinking right. straws, right? Ban the plastic straw, right? Uh, which is fine. It's admirable. I mean, I think there are a lot of big fish to fry out there, and this is great. Whatever. I think it's fine. But this, these Florida Republicans want to put a ban on bans. A ban on straw bans. A ban on straw bans. Yeah. So can we ban bans? And if we ban bans, can we ban that ban on bans? Yeah. You know, the I didn't know the straw lobby was this strong. <laughs> the straw lobby is out the here. The straw lobby is here. They are here to stay. They've got some serious power, uh, apparently. I mean, this is I mean, this is just dumb, I think. It's just silly politics. It's it's governing by triggering the libs. I mean, isn't that how everybody governs now? Sadly. Yeah. Yeah. That's it, right? Sadly, you're not yeah. wrong. All right. That is the voice of uh, Van Newkirk II, staff writer at The Atlantic. We're going to take a really, really quick break, and uh, we will be right back. Stay tuned. Live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. It is The Bill Press Show. Thank you for tuning in. My name is Peter Ogburn, sitting in for Bill Press today. Uh, Bill is out for a couple days this week. He will be back. Uh, But we are going to continue to do what we can to keep the ship afloat with uh, the B team, me, Peter Ogburn. Uh, Find us on Twitter, by the way, at BP Show, at BP Show. Uh, And you can also find me on Twitter. At Peter Ogburn. I don't tweet that much anymore. Yeah, sad. Sad. Yeah. I don't tweet that much anymore. I miss your tweets, man. Oh, thanks, buddy. Yeah, you know. Van, by the way, is like 
first ballot Hall of Fame tweeter. You tweet about all, uh, all, all manner of things, including fatherhood. First of all, yeah. But I, I just I don't know if I've ever extended the actual thank you for being the best part of Dad Twitter. <laughs> Because Dad Twitter is not a great place, a, having been there for 14 years now. Well, I haven't been on Twitter for that long, but I've been a dad for 14 years. Uh, dad Twitter is not great. Van significantly jumped up the uh, the game with Dad Twitter. I feel good being a, a denizen of Dad Twitter. It, it's it's a good place now. Come I on in. So. Yeah, the water's yeah. fine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you also uh, tweet about all all sorts of. Uh, uh, different newsy things. You can follow Van at five fifths. Five fifths. Uh, follow him there. So Van, I, so many things I want to talk to you about. Um, I, I want to first of all pick up on uh, the Michael Cohen testimony because you wrote about this, and there mm-hmm. was so much that came out of that testimony that I think some of it just got completely buried. Michael Cohen talking about some of the language that he heard Donald Trump use. Uh, when talking about black people. And it was troubling, to say the least. It was troubling. I mean, I think he said said black people were stupid. Well, this is what he alleged, Donald Trump said, that black people were stupid, and that's why they wouldn't vote for him. That was a really remarkable line, right? Yeah, I mean, it's... It's remarkable, and also it is if you are looking for something to complete your puzzle of what the Donald Trump worldview is. Yeah. It's the final piece, right? Yeah. It's it, it, it's right there. It's kind of like it's right there and it's um you look at their the strategy basically towards black people towards becoming a party of white people. Yeah. Um this is the final little lego in that in that big X-wing, right? <laughs> yeah, the yeah, X-wing yeah. of racism. It's, yes. It's, black people are stupid not to vote for me. Right, yeah. right. Terrible Christmas gift idea. If you're going to get your kids <laughs> any Legos, don't get them the X-wing of racism. It's not a very popular seller. Uh, it might be now. <laughs> it might be now. In Trump's America, yeah. you know, someone's going to make the X-wing of racism. But it's, I mean, it's, it's right there in front of us. And, yeah. you know, I think Michael Cohen... Put into words what we all know that we've seen from Donald Trump. I mean, I, I don't want to say I'm surprised because I certainly I, I was a lot of things. I was not surprised to hear that. Right. I don't think surprise is the appropriate reaction unless you've been under a rock yeah. or unless you keep doing what lots of media types do, which deny all this. Right. Which yeah. is so you know people say the president is racist or what well, he could be racially charged. Right. But you know the the. Ever since he, the stuff he said about Haiti, if you've ever had a a, a uh, working brain, you yeah. know, the president is 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 racist and yeah. has espoused racist views for years and years, for decades, for longer than yeah, yeah, longer way than before been he was a political figure. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and that's just who he is, and it's part of his policy. Yeah, and I think what Michael Cohen does is he his testimony, and this is what I wrote. We've seen the outward stuff. We've seen you know how he reacts. Two things. What we don't know how much is is what's, what Cory Booker said. I don't know his heart, right? <laughs> but now we we have a good sense of his heart, yeah. Um, and that's that's heart stuff. And it doesn't. I don't care about the heart, but for people who do, yeah, people who really want to know if the president is when he goes to sleep at night, if he's like black people are stupid, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we yeah. kind of have a sense. We know. Yeah, we now know. Yeah. Um, it, there are certain moments that happen. Uh, and we're going to change subjects here because you've written about something else I just I really wanted to talk about. There are certain moments that when these things happen, I go, I have to go see what 
blank is tweeting about this particular moment. And with the Ralph Northam press conference, I said, I got to go see what Van is tweeting about <laughs> because it was amazing. And and I know we're sort of talking about it's not old news. I mean, that he's still the governor. Uh, but that whole news cycle was one of the craziest things I've ever seen. Yeah. And if you look at where we are now, and I, I would bet money on nobody in statewide office leaving that office before 2021. I agree. Um, they're in. They're, nobody's everybody's leaving. in. Nobody's yeah, leaving. And, and I, the strategy among even the Democrats appears to be uh, let's just be quiet and – Things will blow over because things always blow over now in, in Trump's America. There are no sustained scandals. So there were, right? so, yeah, yeah, there were some Democrats that that sort of tried to go out there and say like, oh, this, this is a problem for Ralph Northam because of Trump, and I think that that's not fair. But I also think that there is some truth to that. I think that politicians have now learned that if you just dig in, yeah, you'll be fine. I just wish that the pressure had been sustained enough to where I could see Ralph Northam do the moonwalk. <laughs> and that's, if we don't get a Ralph Northam moonwalk, I believe we will have been, uh, nobody will have been served by this, right? This is, <laughs> he almost did it at that press conference and that was kind of the most absurd, like surrealist painting moment of that. It uh, was amazing. Of that moment, but yeah, you know, it's the, pres- the 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 governor of Virginia engaged in blackface. The attorney general engaged in blackface. There are photos of the one. His nickname used to be Coon Man. Yeah. These are things now on the record and business as usual. Yeah. Yeah. We just yeah. It's just kind of over. And the lieutenant governor, Justin Fairfax, has been accused of sexually assaulting two people. Yeah. And he's going to survive that. Business as usual. Yeah. He's yeah. going to survive that. Uh, Mark Herring, I, I will say the Mark Herring stuff is very bad, but not nearly as egregious as Ralph Northam. That's kind of like the, you know, when you when your mother is coming and you got a bad report card coming and- you know, you, you admit to a lesser thing yeah, to yeah, like yeah, get yeah. ahead of it. Oh yeah, yeah you know, I, I didn't take the chicken out today, Mom. <laughs> so, yeah, I think I think he's he's just he felt the the landscape moving a little bit and wanted to get out in front of it in case somebody does unearth the pictures. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I, the pictures may or may not be out there of, right. of Mark Herring, right? Who knows? Uh, uh, to me, and I, Mark Herring gets very little credit, right, mm-hmm. for doing this. When you put it up against how Ralph Northam handled it, he did a great job. He did an amazing job. <laughs> That's not saying a whole lot, by the way. But, I mean, short of actually wearing blackface to the press conference again, I don't know if you could do worse than Ralph Northam. So that's where right. it is. Yeah. Right. You know, it's it, it, the, the thing that, that I really have a problem with is how many people in this country still think that blackface is okay. I mean, Megyn Kelly lost her job. For I mean, there were a lot of factors that went into her losing her job, but that was the most visible reason was when right. she said, I think blackface is still okay. Yeah. Uh, I've struggled with this one because as a as a black person, um, it seems clear and evident to me that anybody with, again, with a working brain who has been plugged into media in, in any capacity for the past couple of years, the past couple of decades, should know that blackface is wrong. Yeah. Yet people keep doing it in a way that would suggest they do not know. And 
while I think a lot of these folks are kind of like in the thrill seeking, and you could that, that Northern photo was the the one in his yearbook was clearly not an innocuous. Oh, I don't know. Blackface is wrong. Photo. Right. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Whatever right, was right, happening right, right. there, it may, he says it wasn't him. But whatever was happening there, that was a message. Yeah. That was, it was a with a clan person in a clan's robe like that. That those people in that picture knew what they were doing. I'll be very clear. Right. Blackface, very very bad. Yeah. yeah. Blackface next to someone in a clan uniform. That's next level. Somehow worse, th- worse than very very bad. You are hitting for the cycle. Yeah. Right? That is you're going for the cycle. <laughs> that's on a good, that one. What is the racism cycle? That's a that's a great <laughs> question. Okay. I right, sorry. Go, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know, uh, but there are people who seem to. Whenever this record repeats itself, whenever this broken record goes back, they, they you know they see all this whatever's happening with blackface. I think it's because they just don't pay attention to how black people react to things at all. They don't have black friends. They never see black people. They think whatever outrages in the media is manufactured, and Trump's America makes that easier. Yeah, and yeah. so it makes it easier to delegitimize when people are hurt by things, and and not even factor it into your own decision making at all. So, it, as a North Carolinian, you know, I go I go around to people, white friends' houses, and their parents have little Sambo salt shakers, and it's it's kind of like a ubiquitous thing. And if you're raised in that culture, if you if it is ubiquitous to you from your parents and grandparents, and if you are set up in a way to which you don't ever encounter black opinion and don't believe it credible at yeah. default, then it really is it becomes a I think it's innocuous thing. Yeah, even yeah, though yeah. you're doing yep, harm. Yep. Absolutely. Right? No, yeah. that's absolutely right. I always talk about my my grandmother, sweetest woman who ever lived. I mean, I just adored this woman, wonderful woman. Also very racist. Like we would go and visit her uh house and she had like, you know, um all the Sambo dolls just sort of out, you know, and like the mammies, things like that out. Um yeah, that's that's just the, that's just who we are as a country. Yeah, I mean that's why I think it makes more sense to tackle it as a systemic issue. Yeah, and because I mean you can run around and I'm in favor of penalizing people who behave racistly in yeah. in, in, in 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 public and who do racist stuff, but you'll be running around trying to penalize them forever without ever actually making any progress. That Yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I think kind of got lost in this whole blackface thing uh, with Ralph Northam is, do you remember uh, 10 years ago there was a movie hmm. called Tropic Thunder? Yeah, Robert Downey Jr. Robert Downey Jr., Yeah, who not only put on blackface for the movie but affected an accent <laughs> that is very problematic Uh and I remember there was like a blip on the radar when it happened. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, this could be a problem. And then it went away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Iron Man. <laughs> yeah. Now he's Iron Man. Iron Man. Now he's Iron Man. So I think there are a couple things there. This was kind of right on the cusp of internet yeah. culture. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I don't know if it, of course, I think he would have gotten dragged today, right? Today it would have been yeah, the end of yeah. his career. It would have been the end of his career. It's something that no studio would have. Like done, especially for a major movie like Tropic Thunder. Yeah, I mean, it was a huge yeah, movie. It was a huge movie. But also um, how they got away with it and how they skirted the kind of uh, the criticism at the time. I know the NAACP kind of came out against it, and there were the, the legacy black organizations that did come out against it. Um, but their argument Nobody took was them seriously. One, well, yeah, and that's, people have a history of not taking it seriously. <laughs> fair, right? fair. Um, but their argument was that this was all satirical. Right, yeah, his yeah, character yeah. was engaging in blackface because 
uh, uh, it was a commentary on how bad comedians were at the time, right? And yeah. that was kind of the that was the defense. I don't know if it holds up. Um, I don't. There are really funny parts of it. I haven't um, gone back to rewatch it. I, I saw it yeah, once, yeah. but that was what they. That's how they got away with it. Really, is yeah. they were saying it was it was a meta commentary. But that's sort of the the. Uh... One of the Along conversations. With Tom Cruise in a fat suit. Tom Cruise is in a fat suit yeah, in yeah. that movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a lot of big names in that movie, yeah. and it was a big Hollywood production. But you know that that gets to sort of with the comedy stuff, right? The difference between racial humor and racist humor, right? Which is something that I always talk about. Like I think that you know I, I look at some of the Chris Rock stuff, right? Like that's racial humor, and I think it's funny. And I think that there are some things that, especially white comics, try and do. That are, it's not racial. Yeah. It's racist. Yeah. Putting um, on blackface and affecting an accent like Robert Downey Jr. did in that movie is racist. Yeah, it's racist. And so I think that the, the line for me is if, what are the, what are we laughing at, right? Are we laughing solely at our inner character, caricature of black people? Yeah. That's racism, right? Yeah. Yep. Are we laughing at, some deeper, I don't know, interaction or how people themselves, the fact that people have that caricature in their minds, was that the meta commentary? That seems to me to be the more racial stuff, right? Yeah. The fact that people even have these stereotypes. If we're digging at that, then I think that's a different conversation. Um, I think actually uh, Deezus and uh, Mero, Showtime folks, now, uh, my good friends, they said it best in an interview. Oh, wow. you're, you're the name drop there. You're my good friend. Jesus. Well, this was I'm before. Kidding. I'm, like, kidding. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm totally kidding. I'm totally kidding. Sorry, sorry. They, they, you may know my good friend. You may know my good friend. Um, <laughs> but, no, they, they said in an interview that really the, the main thing is if it's funny or not. Yeah. And, and that's the first consideration. Lots of this racist stuff just isn't funny. Yeah. <laughs> people just they, they lean on being malicious because that's all they have. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Shocking isn't funny. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it isn't. But just shocking for the sake of being yeah. shocking yeah. Is, is rarely ever funny. Let's talk some politics, um, especially with how it interacts with race, um, which is every part of politics these days. Uh, you wrote about Stacey Abrams, hmm. who I think is one of the most fascinating figures in politics today. Um, it appears as though she is not going to run for president this time around. Uh, There is a good chance she's going to run for Senate in Georgia. Uh, But no matter what she does, her uh, putting a magnifying glass on the voting rights problem in this country is one of the most important pieces of political work that's being done right now. Um, How powerful of a force is she? If you you're talking about the tornadoes in Alabama earlier, yeah, um, I flew back to D.C. from Selma on Sunday. Wow. Yeah. Okay. The Selma Jubilee. Is that That's right. Yeah, we talked mm-hmm. about that yesterday. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The so voting rights, big celebration of uh, Bloody Sunday, the Selma to Montgomery marches, and the passage of the VRA. Um, I, I was at a panel. I was on the panel on Saturday from the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Uh, Congresswoman Terry Sewell was there. And it's not a special number anniversary. It's 54, which is, you know, that they do it every year. And 50 yeah. was a big one. Sure. And absent the political landscape, you wouldn't expect that to be a, a big one, right? But no. this one was, there was real energy this, this year. Of course, you see that all the presidential candidates were down there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but also, uh, there was talk about 
and, and hope about actually fighting voter suppression in a way that's proactive instead of being on the defensive. And more than, I think Sewell's up there, I think uh, the LDF's uh, Sherilyn Eiffel's up there. Uh, but the figure I would point to who was able to turn and give that, that uh, fight momentum the most is Stacey Abrams. Uh, she lost. <laughs> and and uh, she lost a race that was contested at the end. And I was down there in Atlanta when all the voting machines were conking out and yeah. they were losing. Weird how that happens. Yeah, you know, and they were all in black neighborhoods. Who knows? Yeah, wow. It was all random. Well, just I hate those coincidences. Um, but I was there and. The fact she lost that way, I think, even adds that narrative, right? Yeah. It's She was out there calling out voter suppression unabashedly and made it a part of her platform. Yeah. Not, and not, not as in, she wasn't on the defensive. She wasn't on the back foot. She wasn't just filing campaign. She wasn't just filing lawsuits uh, so they would benefit her campaign in a way. She was out there. She's been out part of that infrastructure and apparatus for years. She's been trying to activate people who have been carved out of that system for years. And she showed, I think, that you can at least overperform as a Democrat just by doing those things. You don't have to go and become a Bill Clinton triangulation person yeah. in the South to pick up rural white voters. And she did pick up lots of rural white voters, I think, because they respond to that message, too. Yeah. They respond to we need democracy to be open in a way that, that lots of poor people of all races uh, get carved out, too. Yeah. Um, and, and so Democrats, if they're looking at viable models— for how to run campaigns and challenge Donald Trump in areas where he is, uh, he does have a good foothold. And they realistically need to pick up one or two Southern states, right? Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That seems to be it. That, yeah. 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 It's, it, and and uh, I've been talking to Democrats uh, from, you know, all ranges of the political spectrum. And it seems to a person, they respect what Stacey Abrams did, and they respect that uh, she was able to do it with this message that's been bubbling up since 2013 with Shelby County versus Holder, yeah. and now it's come to a head. It, it's it's interesting when you look back at how Democratic politicians have handled this issue for years, and you just, yeah. God, they got it so wrong. They got it so wrong, including Barack Obama, who famously said, if you want to vote, you want to vote, you can vote. You can vote. Yeah. And it's really just not that simple. And I think that Stacey Abrams is maybe the most important voice in the Democratic Party right now. I thought that the fact that she gave the uh, uh, response to the State of the Union, which is a slot that is nice to have, but usually just ceremonial, you know, nobody ever really makes news there. I thought hers was amazing. Yeah. And these are not. Those are never amazing. They're, they're always never, bad. They're always bad. Yeah. Like, like, if it's ever newsworthy, it's because you did a terrible job. <laughs> and I think she knocked it out of the park. And I think that every Democratic politician running for president has to pick that up, that, like, yes, we have to make the case to the American people. Yes, we have to get the vote out. But also, we've got this problem. Yeah. Um, Democrats still, even with Stacey Abrams, even with this recent, even with Eric Holder leading gerrymandering, anti-gerrymandering efforts, they're still well behind Republicans on this front. Yeah. And even yeah. though Chris Kovac is out of office, <laughs> um, even Oof. though the voting, the voter fraud commission has, uh, they lost a big lawsuit and got dismantled, 
even with all those things, Republicans are still 10 years ahead of Democrats on this front. And they have yeah. been. They've been 20 years ahead before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. they, I've been, to, I talked to the consultants. Uh, they know the math. Yeah. And they are smart about the math. They know that voter ID, you know, it, it, I don't even think voter ID is the end game. A lot of people do think it is. But I think voter ID is the sort of beginning of what's happening now in lots of places where they are trying to get people to show proof of citizenship yeah. for uh, being able to vote. It's the beginning of what's happening in Maricopa County, Arizona, where Latinos you know, are, are less and less able to vote, where they're facing long lines. Right. And they're all kind of a smokescreen for what the most effective way of getting people off the rolls is, which is voter purges. Yeah. Uh, and that's all still in play, and it will still be a big issue in 2020. Um, and gerrymandering will still be a big issue in 2021, which is when we get the new maps made. Yeah. By the yeah. way, on that note, I just wanted to read this because I got an email from a friend of the show, Carolyn Fiddler. Uh, because Maryland is redistricting their gerrymandered districts. We talk about southern states. I live in Maryland. I'm from the south. Maryland is a southern state, right? Like, it's technically a southern state, but they got Waffle Houses. They do have a Waffle yeah. House. Yeah. They do have, I think, <laughs> one Waffle House in all of Maryland. <laughs> so, yes, okay, it's it's technically it's a southern state. But uh, – Maryland is actually going to address this, and they are going to fight the gerrymandered districts, and they actually uh, selected a congressional map that was drawn by Stephen Wolf, who is an elections writer for Daily Coast. Stephen Wolf's great. Yeah, he's great. Former colleague. He, oh, yeah. oh, really? I used to work for Daily Coast. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. So there you go. Uh, they adopted that as what they want to use to move forward in Maryland. So Maryland, I think a lot of people view it as a blue state. One of the one of the blue southern states, uh, <clears throat> you know, once they fix this gerrymandered map, I mean, you're talking about not just as a whole a blue state, but like within the state, everything else, you know, we're going to have Democrats across the board. Yeah. Um, and Maryland, to be frank, has been guilty of lots of Democratic gerrymandering. And yeah, so that's um, sure. Any, it's Maryland's clearly a Democratic state. And that won't change. Yeah. Uh, but, of course, if, any way we can improve the principle of one person, one vote. And I think Stephen has done a good job with thinking about that. And that's the more we can bring in, and there's a good crop of, of experts now who are thinking about these things. The more we can bring in those expert voices, the more we can use nonpartisan commissions, um, the more we can go towards a system where we basically just try to figure out where people live. Yeah. And we group them naturally based on where they live and how we make compact boundaries. And that will uh, improve what, to be frank, is is no state fully abides by one person, one vote yet. Yeah. And we can get there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, make sure you're following Van on Twitter at Five Fifths. Five Fifths. I imagine you'll have a piece coming out about your trip to Selma. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned all the 2020 candidates are down there. We only have about a minute or two left. I just kind of want to get um, – a vibe from you about what all they said and how they will be addressing race in their campaign for the presidency. Well, I think what you see, what you saw with the candidates down there in Selma and what you see now is, is an increased serious seriousness about the rhetoric of race, about the rhetoric of fighting racism, about making connections with communities like those in Selma. Also, Bernie Sanders was down there and there was a good chapter in his book that was uh, released on Twitter about, uh, 
making Mississippi the center of a revolution. Yeah. People are increasing how they talk about black Southerners, especially, yeah. and, and increasing deferentialness and uh, respect for those voters. What I want to see is policy. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, that Democrats have a long way to go on the actual policies to make the lives of those folks better. Yeah. 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 I mean, you, a lot of people listen to the show just identify themselves as Democrats. And you just have to accept the fact that Democrats as a party have dropped the ball. Yeah. For years. Yeah. For years. And they, they pay great lip service. Of course. They pay great lip service. They want the votes. They but like look, black churches. Yeah. Oh, yeah. they love a black church. <laughs> but, you know, you can win in the South as a Democrat. Uh, but one of the things you have to do is actually deliver on these promises that you make yeah. at these black churches. Just by registrations and by uh, sort of opinion affiliation, Democrats should be able to win Alabama and Mississippi. Yeah. At some point. Yes. And they have so many, so many black voters that just can't vote. If you just made a voting rights platform and, and one that got people food to eat in those two states, you may not win every single statewide election. You increase your representation there. Boom. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, Van, you, you're one of my favorite writers, staff writer at The Atlantic, theatlantic.com. Uh, you can also follow him on Twitter at Five Fifths. Thank you so much for joining me, man. I really appreciate it. Uh, also, again, make sure you're following him because uh, if you're not following Dad Twitter, what are you even doing? Uh, uh, thank you so much for tuning in to the Bill Price Show. We're going to take a very, very quick break. We'll be back with Travis Waldron from HuffPost. Stay tuned, everybody. Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. It is The Bill Press Show. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. My name is Peter Ogburn, sitting in for Bill Press today. Uh, just going to read a couple of comments from Twitter, if I can. Uh, we're tweeting at BP Show, at BP Show. Oh, by the way, Travis Waldron is here from HuffPost. Hey, Travis. Hey, how's it going? Good, man. Thanks for coming in. No problem. We got lots to talk about. So, so many people are tweeting me about my beard. The beard is the same as it's been for a while now. It's the, yeah, I haven't seen you in months, and it looks the same It's the me. same. It's the same wily, unkempt beard that I've had, but everyone's- uh, I think it might be the vest. It's the vest, the beard, and the hat combo. Can I tell you something? I just have to, I'll get into a little bit of behind the scenes stuff, right? I've adopted a uniform, practically. Like, this is what I wear every day. If it's you like watch the, the show. The Obama rule? Yeah. If you only have like three shirts, it's the Marie Kondo thing. Yeah. I just have simplified everything. I wear uh, a, a, a shirt, the vest, and the hat every day. I don't have to fix my hair. I put on the vest all the time. Look, like, no, this is my uniform every day. Ray will Ray will attest to this. It's a modern Steve Jobs in your presence. <laughs> yeah, in every way. In every way. In every way. No, I'm into this uniform idea. I have. I have a similar thing. I have like five outfits that I just rotate, but they don't all look the same. Yeah. So I, I just I have to point out we were talking before the thing. I have my my cosmetics bag, which I keep. Just the essentials. Just the essentials. I have my beard lube. I also For have. For the record, I hate that product name. We talked okay. about this off air. It's a thing. It's a thing. I have to keep the beard looking fresh. I also have my oh, sh my beard oil is leaking. I have beard oil, <laughs> which precious stuff, which smells like pipe tobacco. Uh, right. Just, you know, you should care. What more do There's you need? There's also definitely not pot in there. There is no pot There's in that def bag. Definitely not pot in there. Uh, so somebody else commented to say the beard looked great. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. 
Um, someone else said compliments to you, Peter, for saying you don't want to hear any more about Hillary Clinton running. She had officially said yesterday she's not running again, uh, which I think is great news. Um, she's also, the only one. Ex- she's the only one not running. By the way, uh, this is politics related, I promise, and we don't do obituaries on the show, but yesterday Luke Perry died. Uh, Ray, you're too young to know 90210. I am so embarrassed to say I had no idea who Luke Perry was, and I thought they were talking about Matthew Perry. Oh, wow. Star star of the great movie, Eight Seconds. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, right. that does ring a bell. He was in 90210. Yeah. Uh, and he passed away yesterday. Now, this is politically related because – he, I don't know if you knew this, when he was born, he was delivered by a guy by the name of Charles Brown. Sherrod Brown's dad. Sherrod Brown's I dad. this yesterday. He was delivered by Sherrod Brown's dad. I was wondering why I was seeing people on Twitter waiting for a Sherrod Brown statement. And Sher- I was like, big 90210 guy? Yeah, or- Sherrod Brown did tweet about it. I saw He tweeted that. about it. Because Luke Perry was an Ohioan. He, he talked about it. He, he campaigned for Sherrod Brown. And he said, I've known Sherrod Brown my whole life. Literally my whole life. His dad delivered me. Uh, which I think is just amazing. Small it's world. sad. He was young. Yeah, 52. That, yeah. I mean, that sucks. He had a massive stroke. Uh, and uh, and he is no longer with us. Uh, but, but there's the political connection, which we always try and make on the show. Uh, all right, Travis. Um you write about so many different things. For years, we've known you as uh, our, our friend who could talk about sports. You're always on our annual sports roundtable uh, that we do at Christmas. Um, and you've written about a lot of different things. We're going to get into those. But I first of all want to talk about a piece that you wrote that I just thought was great and nailed it. And uh, This is about Zion Williamson. The last time I was hosting the show was the morning after Zion Williamson's shoes exploded. Right, And he was injured, uh, and you wrote that he got hurt playing in a game that's rigged against him. How so? Well, it's Zion Williamson shouldn't be in college. Amen. And the basic fact is Zion said right before that game, incidentally, that he if I, if he I, would if, have gone to college anyway. If I could just interrupt for just a second. For those who don't know Set who the Zion stage. Set the yeah, stage. If you don't know who Zion Williamson is, he is one of the most electrifying basketball players. He was a top five recruit yeah. in the country last year. He chose Duke over, I think, Kentucky and Kansas. You don't feel bad you about know, that, do you? No, I mean, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, but the basic thing is that Zion Williamson was prevented from going to the NBA draft solely by a rule uh, that the NBA and the NBA Players Union enacted in 2005 that means you have to be nine says you have to be 19 or a and a year removed from co- uh, high school yeah which forced him and a lot of other guys essentially to play a year in college basketball where yeah. they aren't fairly compensated because of NCA scholarship they're compensated rules. at all well they're <laughs> compensated i mean it's okay. it's the the i think the the key point to make when people say they play for free it's not true okay they're 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 receiving a form of compensation. Okay, that's And this fair. is my argument, which is their employees yeah, by that's fair. contract, that's and fair. thus should be treated as such. That's No, that's, um, a, that's a very fair point. That's and fair. the point here, and a lot of people are saying this is a bad, he's a bad person to make an argument because he's going to be fine, yada, yada, yada. Zion should have had the choice. Yeah. And the other kids should have had the choice. The other guys that, that including his teammate, R.J. Butler, who was the number one recruit in the country, yeah. should have been able to choose if they wanted to go to the NBA or play college basketball. And you'll hear from the same people, oh, well, they could go to Europe, they can go to the D-League. 
well, those aren't exactly the same. And this isn't, you know, that by any trust grounds even, that's not necessarily uh, a remedy to, to the problem. And, you know, it's just a, a basic fact that the, the system as it's set up right now is exists in a way where the only people who ever have to assume any risk are the athletes. Yep. Mike Shashevsky, Duke's coach, is going to get paid. Whether yeah. Zion gets paid a dollar in the NBA or not. Yeah. The NBA going to make their money. The NCAA is going to make its money off March Madness, whether Zion's there or not. Turner, TBS, CBS, all yeah. the TV networks going to make their money. Zion Williamson has an insurance policy for $8 million in lost value. Zion Williamson's going to make way more than that in the NBA. Yeah. The only thing, the only person who had to assume any risk by going to college was Zion Williamson. And these rules need to go away. There's no real justification for him at this point. Like, let the, you know, it, take me, for instance. If, if out of high school, the New York Times had decided I was the best journalist at 18 in America, I could have taken that job. Yep. I could have made money for it. Yeah. On, on the side of that, if I went, I went to the University of Kentucky, big basketball, you know, upholder of amateurism and all that. <laughs> if I could make money aside from being a student yeah. at the University of Kentucky. I could have written for the New York Times. Sure. I wrote for the Daily sure. Newspaper. Sure. There. I could make money. College kid, the college athletes can't do that. Well, and a lot of colleges have to do that. I mean, right. they have to go figure out a way to make money. And so, even if even if Zion is going to be okay, yeah, even if this won't meaningfully impact his future earnings, he's still the only one who had to take on the risk of this system. It's such a crazy system, and you know, I I, I get into this uh, with Bill a lot because he, I think he's just sort of an old school guy that you know college players shouldn't be paid, right? Mm-hmm. He, 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 it's a bad take. It's a bad for someone take. on the left side of the political spectrum. I agree. No, it's a bad take. It's a bad. This is a workers' issue. I haven't. It's a labor issue. I haven't got him to move much on the issue. Well, he'll I'm get there one on day. It. I'm working on it. Uh, but it's it, it really is depressing when you look at someone who has a future. As bright as Zion Williamson, I don't think there's a college basketball player who has a brighter future than uh, than he does or did. I, I don't I don't really know where he stands right now in terms of his injury. What he, what it, kind of? I, I'm sure he'll be back. Whether I'm he comes he'll back, be back or doesn't, he's gonna he's still gonna go number one in the draft. Yeah. Um, Zion in the end is gonna be fine. Yeah. The but the point as is, as far as I'm concerned, just go straight to the NBA at this point. Don't even bother coming back to. Well, play. that's what I would tell him to do. But you know, again, it's it's his life. It's his decision. Um. The point is, he should have had a decision a year ago. Yeah, I agree. Uh, all right, we have we have some other stuff we want to talk about. I just I want to read another comment that someone just sent me. Uh, Peter, you need to lose the beard and the hat. You look like you belong on the Duck Dynasty show. Duck Ouch. Dynasty. Ouch. Although she does, this is from Susan. She says she does love my brain. I bet Duck Dynasty guys are big fans of amateurism. Oh, don't you know it? Well, I, and I'm sure they listen to the show and watch definitely, the show every definitely, day. Yeah, definitely. They, yeah, they love to talk about it. I'll defend you, Peter. I like the beard. I think that you should dress how you want to dress. See that? I got one defense. Much like Zion Williamson should be able to play basketball where he wants to play. <laughs> this is a worker's issue. Also. So, uh, Travis, we have we have talked to you uh, about Jair Bolsonaro. Uh-huh. He is Brazil's new president. You've been to Brazil a couple times now. Uh, you have written about this guy extensively. 
And you wrote a very interesting piece, uh, How Police Violence Paves the Way to Authoritarianism. Well, that's a really uh, uplifting, uplifting, hopeful yeah. headline. That's what I do. I'm in the business of, of good news. The, uh, Travis is, uh, covers all things wet blanket uh, <laughs> when it comes to politics. It's terrifying what's happening there. And, you know, we talked to you before uh, when he was first elected about how everyone refers to him as mini Trump or he's sort of like a Trump wannabe or Trump on steroids, Mm -hmm. depending on how you look at it. Uh, But this is one of the things that actually really scares me when we talk about um, uh, the police and the police violence and 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 um, sort of the maximum punishment of of quote unquote criminals. Uh, whether it's here or anywhere else, right? You look at Duterte in the Philippines mm-hmm. and Bolsonaro in Brazil. Uh, what is the big fear when it with this? Well, so the thing, so Brazil uh, is home to some of the deadliest police in the world. Last year, last few years, they've killed five thousand people each year. Just the police uh, in Rio, which is the second biggest city, they're and Sao Paulo, they're responsible for about one in every five homicide deaths the police are uh this is a long-standing issue in brazil it dates back to you know the dictatorship that ruled until 1985 it's actually got a little bit worse interestingly coming out of the dictatorship once police once the rest of the country democratized and the police didn't the fear with bolsonaro though is it'll get even worse um he has promised to give cops what he calls carte blanche to kill uh oh that's great that sounds really great um it's basically, and now there's, uh, there, you know, in in early February they introduced a proposed law that would essentially codify police impunity into law, even though they're already pretty uh, free of scrutiny. So, by the way, if I if if I can, I just want to put some numbers behind that from your piece mm-hmm. at HuffPost.com. Um, I'm just going to read this paragraph that you wrote. Uh, For decades, Brazil has given its police nearly free reign to shoot and kill people suspected of crimes. As Bolsonaro made his pitch for the presidency, the numbers were only getting worse. Listen to these numbers. Cops in the country killed more than 5,000 people in 2017, a 20% increase from the prior year. Uh, It's That's terrifying. And three-quarters of... The victims are black. Yeah. Roughly three quarters of the victims of homicides in Brazil are black. And there were 64,000 homicides there last year. And so the, the thrust of the piece and the thrust of what we are talking about in the piece is, is that in these ineffective policing policies, this shoot to kill policing that Brazil has already been doing has not really angered the broader population it's as as homicide rates have continued to increase it's led for even more authoritarian calls yeah uh and i talk to researchers and people who study police who say that basically you know even in democratizing societies the police remain uh kind of pockets of authoritarianism and it's not the the situation in brazil while the numbers are are much worse than they are here i mean just in rio Last year, police killed more people than they killed in the entire United States, even though the U.S. population is 20 times Rio's. Uh, but the the dynamics are fairly similar in that it's rooted in slavery. Uh, it's rooted in racial and socioeconomic, socioeconomic inequality. Yeah. Uh, you have basically two groups, which is one group that gets policed and one group that gets protected from police. And it it creates this sort of, you know, for lack of a better term, sort of a death spiral of that dynamic leads to 
it's ineffective in stopping crime. It's ineffective in making the police less violent. Uh, and yet, when crime rises or when the perceptions of crime rise, because here that was what Trump preyed on, right, was homicide rates were actually at uh, pretty close to record lows yeah. when Donald Trump was running for president. And yet the perception among white Americans was that American, crime had gotten worse. American carnage, right. as he famously said in his And so it, it creates this spiral where people want even more uh, aggressive solutions. Yeah. And you can see the same gaps. You know, every time I write about this issue, I hear from Brazilians who say, "You don't know what it's like to live here. You don't. You don't understand what the crime does, et cetera." And you, but you can see the gaps. You you see how you when you talk to people in Brazil, similar things to what polls and and conversations here will elicit, which is that there there's a difference in perception of what the police are doing, and and the people who are who are subject to the worst of the crime and the worst of the violence have very different views of, of it than the people who are in the protected class. Right, right, and right, right. It's a, you know, I wrote the story. The story's about Brazil. I was reporting in Brazil. I, I think the numbers in Brazil are, are so outrageous is that they should get everyone's attention. And yet the dynamics, you know, the piece is essentially a piece about us, too. And... uh you know, you can see so many similarities in the United States uh, and the dynamics here. I mean, f yes. For me, when Donald Trump started openly talking about the death penalty for drug dealers, mm -hmm. um, which is an idea he completely stole from uh, Duterte, uh, that was that was my first, maybe not my first, but that was definitely an oh my God. Right moment but he could really take this to a level that no president would ever even imagine or uh -huh. consider taking it to well and the other thing about bolsonaro too and another reason i wanted to focus on the police so much is because i wrote a lot and there was a lot of concern after he was elected through the election and, and then after he won about what he would mean for brazilian democracy and and we've seen in the in the you know two months now that he's been president that he's he's kind of scandal plagued and his government's been fairly ineffective and kind of a mess so far, but policing uh, and and the targeting, the further targeting of marginalized communities, uh, whether it's black Brazilians, LGBT Brazilians, indigenous Brazilians, um, is is probably going to be the, the easiest place to see his effect. Yeah. And, and again, these are things that existed. These are problems that existed before Bolsonaro. Brazil was already the deadliest country in the world sure. for LGBT people, or one of the deadliest in the world for LGBT people before Bolsonaro. Yeah. The, but I've talked to people who said he's in, he's further emboldened that sort of violence. I talked to people in Brazil who said the cops it didn't even wait until he got in office to be more aggressive. This is something that we, we talked about a little bit with Van Newkirk in the last segment. Uh, look. Is Donald Trump to blame for, you know, uh, these politicians that are wearing blackface that are able to keep their jobs? No. Is Donald Trump to blame for Bolsonaro and all these other dictators sort of amping up their rhetoric? Maybe not. But it certainly helps that he is enabling this because they are now seeing that you can get away uh -huh. with a lot if you just stand firm. Yeah, I mean, I think I think Donald Trump is so, that, that's that's the big takeaway for right. me. I think all these guys in the in the broader sense are are symptoms of larger problems. Yeah, but they're reinforcing symptoms in the sense that they're 
you know, they're making it worse. Yeah. I mean, Bolson, Trump is Trump paved the way. And I wrote this in a piece on New Year's Day that, you know, Bolsonaro followed the Trump, you know, path to the presidency. Yeah. And other people in Latin America are already looking at Bolsonaro as a model. Yeah. And, you know, now you will see, you know, but they're also emboldening their supporters. They're, you know, just last week in Brazil, um, the justice minister appointed a a woman who's a longtime researcher and expert on on violence, on on how to prevent violence and how to really stem violence. Bolsonaro, like right wing echo chamber on Twitter, goes into overdrive, uh, and basically kills her. You know, so much backlash that they pulled the appointment. Yeah, and Bolsonaro pulled the you know went after the guy who appointed her and you know all because she's maybe more anti-gun than they are or you know doesn't want to just shoot and kill every single person and you know, so you see a lot of the similarities there and i think it's those are similarities we we should probably pay more attention to um okay so i i want to switch gears to venezuela um because you've written about this as well and i just have to say our collective memory as a country is so bad because here we are and one of the main people in charge of handling the situation in Venezuela on our end is Elliot Abrams. And if you don't know who Elliot Abrams is, go read a book. Just Google Elliot Abrams. Just, I mean, look, I mean, look, Google the 2002 attempt against Hugo Chavez. <laughs> In Venezuela. I mean, he um, is a monster. He is a monster. And he somehow continues to get jobs in these Republican administrations. It blows my mind. It blows my mind. And yet, here we are. Um, there was a moment, and you wrote about that there was, and we don't have a ton of time left, but I want to get into some of this. You, there was a moment not that long ago that we were talking about possibly sending troops to Venezuela. Well, Where Bolton, are we now? Bol John Bolton put, you know, wrote that on a notepad and it was conspicuous at a press conference. Whether or not we were really doing it, who knows. Uh, where it stands now is a great question. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I think there's been some reports that the Trump administration and, and Juan Guaido, who is the opposition leader in, in Venezuela, thought this was going to be pretty over and done with quickly. And they're sort of scrambling now. Um, you know, for Trump and the U.S., it seems more like a campaign issue and a wedge issue of let's yell about socialism. Right, right, um, right. And they're doing all their, you know, typical stuff in terms of weaponizing humanitarian aid as a kind of a propaganda tool instead of listening to the Red Cross and the United Nations and saying, please don't politicize humanitarian aid. There's a real humanitarian crisis Who here. Who are they? The, no. Right. And, then, you know, Guaido uh, went back to Venezuela yesterday, which sparked a lot of concerns that Nicolas Maduro, the current president, would arrest him. He didn't so far. So far. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of other stuff moving on this in terms of, you know, we tend to take a very U.S. centric view of it for. Of course we do. Right. But also because, you know, the U.S. role in Latin America and when John Bolton's going on TV over the weekend and talking about the Monroe Doctrine, <laughs> you know, it kind of. <laughs> And and now they're putting more symbolic sanctions on Cuba, as Trump did yesterday. Yeah, it starts to feel like everything old is new again. But there there are a lot of people in you know a lot of other countries <laughs> involved in this, and 
you know, it, it seems really unclear now where and what the next steps are because, you know, I saw one of the guys I follow on this yesterday was tweeting, you know, early February it seemed, oh, well, this will be over quickly. You know, Guaido will yeah. take, you know, Maduro will fall and there will be new elections. And then, you know, three weeks ago it was, well, all the momentum is out of the opposition. Maduro will is going to hold on. And now yesterday wow. it seemed to switch again. And, yeah. you know, I don't know. I mean, for me as a you know, kind of covering the U.S. government's role in this is what we've written about is the question, because we get the criticism, right? You you criticize the or you you scrutinize the U.S. government role in this at all at all. And then the people on Twitter, well, you're defending Maduro. Yeah. No, no. Um, <laughs> but it's it's sort of I think there's a broader question here of what can the U.S. make better here? <laughs> yeah, You know, yeah. Venezuela is in crisis. There's a humanitarian crisis. Things are not good. But is the is what the U.S. do it is what the U.S. is doing is the saber rattling and, and all of this. Is it is it going to make it better? And I thought, you know, there's useful questions. And, and Bolton got asked them on TV this weekend of you're propping up dictators all over the world. And yet this one we're supposed to believe is all about democracy. I mean, there's skepticism abound <laughs> um god this is such a depressing story. and it, it's it's, it's, it's really a tough it's a really story. tough story because it's it's moving in a million different places and and it's hard to tell what is going to happen uh travis waldron from huff post thank you for joining us thank and, you uh, i'll be back with better news in the at future. least we get to talk some basketball there we go segment something that we can uh uh, although it wasn't great news either. So anyway, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. If you're watching this live, go get the podcast. Make sure you follow Travis Walton on Twitter at Travis underscore Walton. This is the Bill Press Show.